at first when I began to look at this, I thought there was sort of a bifurcation, right? The digital and film. I think it's really more now like a trifurcation. There's like the the class A brand new buildings, which are still, you know, doing 150, 200 hours a foot in rents. There's all that, the the competitively obsolete buildings that you really can't rent, which, which we spoke about. And then there's everything in between. And the everything in between is the is the the most interesting part because there you really have to look through the nuances to understand which of those buildings will be competitive. This is Deconstruct, a podcast by The Real Deal. I'm Isabella Farr. And I'm Susanna Kavanaugh. And this is our last episode of the season. Happy summer, y'all. Yeah, we're going to be back just ahead of Labor Day with some more big name interviews and market explainers. And definitely look out for our teaser trailer that'll air later this summer. We're rounding out our season with a chat with one of New York's most notable developers, RxR's Scott Reckler. I loved the breadth of this interview. We covered office distress, what's going on with REITs, which other investment opportunities the firm is eyeing. Yeah, and we also dug into what's going on with 61 Broadway. That's the Manhattan office building that RxR chose to hand back the keys on earlier this year. And we got the full scope of Reckler's Project Kodak. That's what the firm has called its evaluation process for determining which office buildings still have legs and which aren't worth keeping. Yeah, I thought it was notable that Reckler said when he first looked at his buildings, he saw this black and white divide. There were what he calls digital buildings that are still pulling high paying tenants. And then there are film buildings, which are buildings that are no longer attractive. But as that evaluation process has progressed, Reckler said his team has seen the shades of gray in the office market. So the buildings where it's not immediately clear whether the asset will be competitive in this new office landscape. Right. And he also touched on the multifamily side of things. This wave of maturity is coming up that you're reporting on, Susanna, for July's magazine. So I won't entirely spoil that. Thank you. Okay, so we're keeping our news roundup a bit shorter this week so we can give you the full interview with Reckler. Here's our top headlines. Breaking right now, the rent is going up for about 2 million tenants in the city. Good evening. So we got the Rent Guidelines Board final vote in New York last Wednesday. Yes, and as expected, it was a wild one. Tenants were banned from bringing noisemakers or drums. That's because at the preliminary vote in May, they stormed the stage with them and derailed the meeting. And did that ban work? No. So no stage storming at the final vote, but tenants did bring a few whistles and they essentially protested throughout the entire proceeding. They were chanting for a rent rollback and they were booing landlord proposals for rent increases. So it was an eventful vote for sure. And what was the outcome there? A 3% rent increase, which to landlords isn't enough to cover their rising operating costs and to tenant advocates. Um, you know, it serves as a threat to unhoused renters who are already dealing uh, with heavy rent burdens. So it was another lose-lose for both parties. And we saw a few bills affecting landlords in New York. Let's run through those. The city council introduced legislation that would cap brokers' fees and shift that cost to landlords in some cases. The state had done something similar after the 2019 rent law passed, barring landlords from charging tenants brokers' fees. But that regulation was defeated in court. 
The bill would still see tenants pay broker's fees if the tenant hired the agent. But if the landlord did the hiring, the landlord would have to pay. So kind of a fair is fair interpretation. The state legislature also approved a ban on, quote, Frankensteining stabilized apartments. Right. So the real deal coined that term a few years back. Frankensteining is the process of combining two neighboring rent-stabilized units that are vacant. That was a loophole in the rent law and one of the only ways for owners to meaningfully boost rents after the rent law passed. If they mashed together two apartments, they could set a new first rent, so a revenue bump for that landlord. That bill is headed to the governor's desk. And one more New York item. Hudson Yards for years has been a punching bag for city progressives. Eric Enquist, our senior managing editor, dug into this in a column last week. The crux was that the city's comptroller, Brad Lander, admitted that progressives got it wrong when they said the development would be putting the city's finances at risk. Hudson Yards was bankrolled by bondholders who would then be paid back through the taxes the project generated. So basically, if the development didn't produce the revenue it promised, city taxpayers would need to pay the difference. But Lander said Hudson Yards has actually produced $200 million more in revenues than expected, and those tax dollars are projected to grow to $300 million. Down in South Florida, we had a huge scoop by reporter Catherine Kalurgis. She reported that Terra Group, a developer based in the area, flaked on its plan to buy a Genting Group's downtown Miami assemblage. The property would have been the priciest urban land sale in Florida and one of the more expensive in the country at $1.2 billion. I think we're still following that deal, you know, and why it fell apart. So be sure to follow that. And some more Brookfield news to round us out. You reported that a crop of Brookfield moles is facing distress. Yeah, it's a little over a billion-dollar portfolio that's spread across the Midwest and East Coast, and the issues kind of follow the storyline we've seen with most struggling retail. Malls shut down during the pandemic, and they never really bounced back. Many shopping centers are still shedding tenants. A lot of those struggling malls are in suburban markets, but notably Brookfield is having problems with the North Jersey Mall right across the bridge from Staten Island. It's in foreclosure after Brookfield defaulted on a $225 million loan. And there are also hints of distress for a Brookfield mall in lower Manhattan. So last month, servicers watchlisted a $265 million loan backed by the retail portion of Brookfield Place. Working to Brookfield's advantage, though, is that the loan is current and the mall is over 90% occupied, but the debt service coverage ratio, so that's Brookfield's ability to make debt payments, it showed that the property wasn't pulling in enough income to cover those payments. And the investment group is facing more problems in downtown LA. This week, Fitch Ratings flagged Brookfield's Bank of America Tower as facing a default risk at maturity. The property, which is backed by a $400 million CMBS loan, is struggling with occupancy, but the loan is fixed rate, so rising rates aren't necessarily hurting their debt payments. The loan comes due next September, so Brookfield still has some cushion to write the debt, and it said it's found potential tenants to fill some expected vacancy in the first quarter of next year. We'll leave it there for news, and we'll jump into our interview with RxR's Scott Reckler. Okay, 
So Scott, can you introduce yourself to start? Sure. I'm Scott Reckler, and I'm the CEO and chairman of RxR. So I wanted to start with Project Kodak, which is what you've called your sort of triage approach to assessing which assets will be resilient in a down market. How are you sorting out older film buildings, as you've characterized them, from the digital ones? So which qualities do the film properties have in common? Sure. And I would probably frame it not as triage, but more as sort of an eyes wide open approach, right? Recognizing that the world's changed and you know what was competitive pre-COVID in this post-COVID world isn't gonna be the same. And, I, and, and frankly, a lot of the uh, changes were starting to happen pre-COVID, COVID accelerated this as we ended up shifting from re- remote work to hybrid work and needing to bring people back to the office. And so there was a higher uh, level of uh, priority um, or premium placed on higher quality buildings, right? And and that and so when we began to look at our portfolio, we said, okay, which are the buildings that um, our customers um, are going to want to um, come back to and um, and have the, um, the the characteristics that would make them competitive in that in that po- in that post COVID world? And uh, you know, I think what there's it, it was even different than I think you know before in terms of the standards, right? That were out there. I mean, clearly. Access to transportation is is key. Having the right level of um, amenities and programming in the buildings. You think about this. You want this to be magnetic. You mean you want people to come back to work. So you want to make it easy. You want to make it compelling. You want to make it energizing. You want it to feel like there's a sense of community. You want to have places um, for people to come, collaborate, engage, um, and not only in the building, but frankly, the community around the building. You want that to be. A place that people feel, wow, this is exciting to be back in New York, to be on the streetscapes, to go to that restaurant, to go in that outdoor park. And so those are the buildings that we think would be competitive. And, and you know, we, when we first went through the process and I, I charged the team with doing it, you know, they came back and almost every building sort of filled within the same band. And so I had to say, OK, we got to get more granular because that can't be true. So we then, you know, created a, a more uh, objective level of rating system in terms of um, you know, what are the key uh, metrics that we would focus on on the areas that I spoke about, location, infrastructure, amenities, the types of tenants, the outstanding the community around the buildings, et cetera. And, um, and then, you know, when we went through it all, we, we probably ended up with about 10% of our, our buildings that I would put into the, the film category, which, and, and then, you know, part of that test on the film category is say, okay, is there a number in terms of a rent that you'd be able to attract tenants to that building. And, um, and, and 61 Broadway was one of the examples where I remember the team said, well, there's all these different tenants in the marketplace. You know, here's where the rent is that we deem as market rent. I said, okay, lower it by 10% and come back and tell me if you can bring one of those tenants to the buildings and lower to 10% and they still didn't come. Right. And so that sort of gives you a feel that that building's going to have a hard time being competitive on a going forward basis. And, and the one thing I also note that's important, what we did in Project Kodak was we did not look at the capital structure, right? So this is really specific to the building itself. A separate filter would be, what's the capital structure? What's the the, the debt level on that building? With it, and, and, and my perspective of that is, if it's a digital building that has a um, capital structure that needs to be restructured to reflect the current rent environment, the current cost environment, the current valuation environment, 
you know, that's a different task that we'll then go pursue. If it's a film building that has that, that has, you know, a much more challenging area and, and a much lower level of uh, likelihood that we would actually support that. Right. That, that makes sense. So do you think you might apply that capital structure test to the digital buildings at some point in the future? We are. I mean, we're doing it right now. I mean, I think, and, and we're doing it, frankly, I mean, in our view, you know, so you know, when you really think about what's happening, there's a there's a convergence of of um, three things happening simultaneously to the uh, office market, right? One is what we were just talking about, which is the structural change of how people work and what they expect to get in a workplace, and thus what's the competitiveness of that workplace. And I always made the analogy: we saw that in the mall space after e-commerce, right? What's a Class A mall, and what's a, a mall that becomes competitively obsolete? So that's the, the first piece, and we just spoke. The, the second piece is is the is the macro economic environment right now, right? Which is that as the economy is slowing down, the cost of capital has gone up. Uh, companies that were growing at a very fast pace coming out of COVID, expecting to the surge of demand that we saw to be something that was sustainable and turned out to be something that was just temporary, are now pulling back, right? So you, the tech companies, the financial service firms all the layoffs that we're hearing about is weighing down the office market. And that's a macro impact that is having. And then the third is the the paradigm change in interest rates, right? Where we've now gone at from a decade and a half uh, plus of having low to near zero interest rates, which um, ex- inflated the value of all real estate, not just the office, all real estate, um, and 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 now um, has any any financing that was done during that period of time needs to be restructured or reequitized um, when those loans come due to reflect the higher interest rate environment and the lower valuations. And so you know that so the so the opportunity from my standpoint as I look at the the market is if you have digital buildings that are able to compete for tenants um, in this world at these, you know, at the current uh, pricing that need to be recapitalized, those are good places to invest, whether it's an RXR building or not an RXR building, because you're able to uh, buy in, whether it's preferred equity, mezzanine or, or direct equity, at a at a moment of dislocation where every building is being painted with the same brush, good or bad. And as you ride through the cycle, if you're a believer like I am that uh, as we get through the other side, three to five years from now, the valuations will settle back to a more normal level, um, and there'll be a a uh, the markets will start distinguishing between the digital competitive buildings and the non digital buildings, right? And I think it's even more nuanced as we've started to go through it. I would say that there's, you know, at first when I began to look at, this, I thought there was sort of a bifurcation, right? The digital and film. I think it's really more now like a trifurcation. There's like the the class A brand new buildings, which are still, you know, doing 150, 200 hours a foot in rents. There's all that, the the competitively obsolete buildings that you really can't rent, which, which we spoke about. And then there's everything in between. And the everything in between is the is the the most interesting part because there you really have to look through the nuances to understand which of those buildings will be competitive. And and that's where you know different gradations um, of of competitiveness. Um, is, is is unclear unless you really have a pulse as to what's happening uh, in the market. Um, and, and I think that's where we're able to take advantage of, of some interesting opportunities. 
So, you know, you talk about this like building by building approach. Do you think that this is something that other developers and other landlords are going to start having to do if they're not already doing it? I mean, I'm a big believer of trying to be proactive, right? And not uh, let the, you know, nature take its course, but try to sort of get ahead of what's happening. And so uh, if they haven't done it yet, it's going to happen naturally to them because as loans start to come due or there's capital needed, uh, for buildings, um, they're going to have to either make investment decisions themselves and they're going to have to say, am I throwing good money after bad? Or they're going to have to go to the, the market and you know try to source um, lenders or equity and they'll be told if they're throwing good money after bad, right? So it's going to ultimately happen. And, and it's been, you know, these things tend to start slow and then they start to pick up steam and speed, right? With each transaction, and each time there's something that happens with that, that sets a valuation mark or precedent, um, it you know things start to you know uh, happen more more quickly. And then obviously as loans start to mature, and we get you know that that's going to continue to sort of push us. What do you think owners risk if they wait too long to start looking at their office buildings as as you have, where you're thinking, okay, this one isn't worth putting more money into or worth keeping. What what do they risk if they sort of stay in the denial stage? Like I've heard um, the office market and the folks in it described as going through this period of mourning. So, you know, I think, you know, a couple of things, right? I mean, even if it's a, a building that has the potential to be digital or digital, um, it, it, you know, it, it requires um, investment in most buildings, right, require investment in putting in the right amenities, putting in the right level of infrastructure, um, looking at the capital structure. And so the sooner that you do that, the more competitive you're going to be in being able to lease that building, the more you're going to be able to have a plan to put in front of lenders that they could buy into uh, along the way. I mean, if you wait to the end, um, you know, you run the risk of losing the tenants that are in the building you run the risk of investing money that you're not going to get back out of the building, right? So that's, you know, good money after bad is something you don't want to do. And it's not a good discipline as a fiduciary uh, to do something like that. Um, and so I think, you know, the, 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 it's, that's a plan of waiting to see what happens and hope it all works out is not a plan that uh, I would, uh, I, I would put money behind. I wanted to pivot for a second to the subject of public REITs. Obviously, they've been struggling with dipping stock prices. They've been hit really hard over the last few months. RxR is a non-traded public company. Do you think that RxR is a little bit insulated from that market pain? How do you think about that? Well, I, I think, um, you know, and I, I've run a public company for over a decade, right? And I think what ends up happening when you run a public company is um, on the positive side, when your stock price is going up, it helps put wind at your back. And when your stock price is going down, um, it put wind at your face and it becomes hard to navigate with all that transparency. In moments like this, um, not having um, the, uh, the disclosure, not having um, a stock price that uh, is putting you know, pressure on your company, not having all your assets combined uh, as credit for your companies, right? Because, I mean, the RxR, we, invest, we, we borrow asset by asset on a non-recourse basis, right? So you have much more flexibility in that manner than you do as a, as a public company. The other thing, you know, you've seen in, in public stock price, really, they're not 
the, the correlation between a share price and the net asset value of the underlying assets don't necessarily line up. You know, I mean, when we sold our last public company, which was in uh, January 2007, a New York office company, there hasn't been um, any time since we've sold that company that um, the office REITs in New York traded above their published net asset value, right? So, I mean, that's, would say that they don't really correlate. So there's, part of this is um, a perception of growth that's reflected in the stock price. And so right now, um, you know, in the office sector, particularly CBD office, there's such a negative bias um, from the capital markets, both public and private, but on the public side of the equation, you see that negative bias gets translated and exaggerated into these meaningful um, discounts in their stock price, and um, and the, the and so while that's that's obviously says they're trading cheaper to maybe liquidation value, it doesn't necessarily mean that they're not reflecting fair value of that company because they still have to work through the challenges of having that low stock price. And what it means to their balance sheet, their their, their investment grade rated, their 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 credit rating, um, their access to capital, uh, et cetera. So um, so it's it is it is a, a complexity. And again, at moments like like this, you know, for a company like ours, you know, I I, I say our strategy sort of contain and capitalize. Right, we have our existing portfolio of activity, contain that, focus on it, be proactive. Right, that's Project Kodak. Uh, but capitalize on the opportunities. And we're investing billions of dollars into preferred equity in office and multifamily um, at, at a moment in time that we're going to look back and say this was a, a backup the truck moment in time because there's so little liquidity in the market um, that you're able to buy really high quality or invest in really high quality assets at prices and terms that you normally would never have the ability to make those investments in. I like that back of the truck characterization. I hadn't heard that in real estate before. So you mentioned 61 Broadway, where you made the decision to hand back the keys. What would you say lenders' appetite is for those types of solutions? Deeds in lieu of foreclosure. I've also heard of short sales cropping up. Do you think that banks and alternative lenders are sort of willing to take the hit there at this point? So just a couple things, right? The Hand back the keys is, you know, is is a, a phraseology. It's not really the way um, these things work, right? I mean, because you know, it, as a responsible borrower, right, we borrow on a non-recourse basis, which means that you know we agree that if if things aren't working out, we will cooperate and give the building back to the lender, but we have no other recourse to us, right? That's again, and it's a, a nuance to real estate. Like if you think corporate debt doesn't work that way, but that's how real estate works. And, and if you're a disciplined investor, that's how you invest asset by asset on a non-recourse basis because it minimizes your risk. You know, 61 Broadway, we sold a 49% interest in 2015 um, and we pulled out all our equities. We have zero equity invested in that building right now. So any new money we're putting in, you have to believe that you're going to get a good return on it because why would we, you know, we've already returned all our capital, right? So this is really a, a new investment. So looking from that lens, and so, you know, the way we approach it, I think that um, you know, most uh, people will approach it if you're in this situation, is have a candid conversation with the lender and say, listen, look, look at where the market is, look at where the rents have to be. Here's the pro forma. Uh, here's where we think the building is worth compared to your debt. And you may have been a 60% loan to value when the loan was, was issued. 
today it's 120%, 130%, whatever the number is. And, um, you know, you can go do your own market study, which they usually do. They get a, a appraisal themselves and get some valuation analysis. And, and then once they have that understanding as to where that is, they have a decision to make, right? They could work with the borrower if the borrower wants to and say, okay, invest new money in based on that new lower debt and we'll forgive a portion of the debt or we'll subordinate a portion of it um, or we'll go work together to sell the building. And that's true. That's that, that's really what ends up happening is right. We work together with the lender to sell the building. And I think you use the word short sale, like that, that, you know, prepackaged agreement, whatever you want to call it, to try to do it as efficiently as possible for the lender, as efficiently as possible for us and and as least amount of friction in the marketplace so you can try to get the highest price uh going through that 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 process and so i think we're going to see more and more of that naturally happening the biggest challenge is right now that there's a really illiquid market so if you're trying to do that you have to assume that a buyer of that building is going to be able to actually get new loans new debt to finance that acquisition and I would I would argue at this point is that um, this is probably in all my years there's I've, I've never seen as little or I mean it's almost none for office buildings lenders that are out there wanting to finance office buildings and because that's really you know predicated on that where the banks and the insurance companies are getting a significant amount of pressure from the regulators from the rating agencies from their shareholders to reduce their real estate exposure and with a particular focus on their exposure to office because of the uncertainties around office. Again, paint them with all the same brush. So, you know, if they're being asked to reduce their own loan book, they're not going to go make a new loan, right? Unless, you know, at, at this time. So I think we're in a period where it's, there's just illiquidity. So it's going to force, and, and we haven't seen it yet. So I guess, you know, we're just going to start, right? We'll see 61 Broadway is going to be an interesting scenario, there's a nuance with 61 Broadway, which is there's conversion opportunity, right? To convert some of that to multifamily, which we're working on and we're going to put a proposal ourselves in. But if it's just straight office, I'm not sure there's an easy answer here, right? So this is going to play itself out, but we're we're just in the early innings of watching how this is going to develop. Yeah, no, it sounds like it could be a case study for the market. So we're curious to see what plays out there too. Can you talk about, obviously, we're seeing a lot of CMBS debt coming to you. Can you talk about how lenders are thinking about refinancing and are there short-term solutions or borrowers just looking for that pref equity or the mezzanine, just something to get over the edge? Or are there any, I think I saw a big refinancing a couple of weeks ago um, there was actually a two-year deal, um, and that kind of surprised me. But can you talk a little bit about what lenders are looking for there? Again, because of what I just said relative to the lack of lenders in the market right now, um, you know, what you, I would just say lenders in general, if they're lending, they're lending to their their best borrowers, the best relationships, and that means relationships that come with a lot of other activity, right? So, you know, you saw SL Green did a refinancing in 9193rd. Um, the, 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 the amount was lower, the, um, but the, the, uh, um, that was really, I'm sure because of the relationship, right? Most of what you're seeing right now are that the banks that, um, hold the mortgages are being forced to refinance. And they, uh, I think generally will do a short-term refinancing as you described. Um, but alternatively, 
Um, there are situations where you can inject uh, new capital into the into the, the, um, the capital structure, whether it's to deleverage or to fund tenanting costs or capital improvements related to tenanting costs. And the in those instances, those lenders will give you a longer term um, a period because you're partnering right to, to strengthen the asset. And that is an opportunity. And that's something that we're spending a lot of time. We call it good news money, right? Good news lending, where we're coming in for um, buildings and for owners, not RXR, where we'll step in and inject preferred equity into uh, those buildings to help fund the, those those needs of deleveraging or the, or the capital um, and, and as part of the bank agreeing to extend for a uh, four or five year term to get to the other side. Right. When you're putting in more equity, you're also taking a bet on that building, right? Because it's you've got to get that return. So I guess you have to believe in that asset. Right. And, and I think that the trick there is, uh, and that's why typically we've been using preferred equity, right? So you will put in money, uh, generally a dollar one above the debt, and we get a preferred, a high preferred return. And then we share everything above that because it's hard to value buildings today because there's no trades, right? There's not a lot of price discovery in that marketplace. So this, you know, by by using this structure, we, we don't have to be as focused on the ultimate value because we have the original equity is subordinate to our base return. So we are just focusing on tighter lending. We saw the Fed do a pause this week, but it seems like there's going to be more rate increases going forward. Do you think that pause will have any effect on deals? No, I don't think so. I mean, as you said, it's a, it's. Um, I think the Fed likes to call it a skip, right? Because it's, it's more. Um, I mean, I think it was acknowledged that there's going to be other rate hikes, and this is a tough situation um, in the sense that the the data is signaling that we still have a strong economy and we haven't got inflation under control, particularly on the consumer and labor um, um, numbers that are that are out there, um, but when you go through history and look at this, it's monetary policy and tightening like this, um, the effects lag by 12 to 18 months. And so we're halfway through that if you take the outer bounds of that. So uh, what what I think the Fed needs to be cautious about is not overshooting, right? And then we have that hard landing that everyone's afraid about um, in that that, uh, circumstance. Um, And so, you know, my sense is, that the message has now gotten out that at the very least, even if there's not going to be a number of other rate increases, that the Fed is intent on holding rates higher for longer um, and rates aren't coming back down, which I think has been a message they keep trying to get out. Um, but the market doesn't seem to buy, have bought into that yet. Um, so if, that, if that's the case, I don't think that's going to result in that much more transactions. I mean, my own personal view, when I look at the stock market, and um, and uh, you know I, I see what's happening out there. I think that this is sort of the quiet before the storm. Um, you know, you go back, and I remember um, in two thousand six and two thousand seven. And if you chart like labor and you chart earnings and you chart stock price, they're all high. And then the recession hits, and we have the Great Recession, right? And so it's you know usually before you have the downturn, 
um, you don't see it coming. Things are still trending up. And then the downturn happens. Yeah. Speaking of, um, you know, rates staying higher for longer, I was reading a report recently that was talking about this wall of maturities for multifamily uh, happening in the fourth quarter and saying with rates being high, um, it might be tricky for rescue capital to come in and sort of help those owners out. Do you see that being a possibility? I think you hit, to me, this is sort of the untold story here. I think this is going to be the Achilles heel of the of the, the, the this commercial real estate downturn, right? Which is everyone's focused on the office because it's sexy, it's big cities. The There's been, you know, a record level of multifamily uh, investments made in 2021. Um, there's a record level of multifamily development that's coming on in line in 23. 24. All these loans were done in that low to no interest rate uh, paradigm. They've been financed primarily by regional banks around the country. Um, And and so this is is where the day of reckoning is coming, right? And this is where the challenge, I think, is to um, the banking systems uh, that these loans are going to have a very hard time being Refinance. I mean, and, you know, a simple example. Um, we were working on a loan in the in the Sunbelt City, and um, that uh, the, the investor bought a building for hundred million dollars. They financed it with sixty percent leverage, so conservatively financed, raised forty million dollars through syndications, friends and family. If they, to refinance this today, they did an appraisal. The hundred million dollar loan building is now worth eighty, and instead of being able to get sixty million dollars. They can only get uh, forty, so they got to go back to their investors and say, "By the way, you know that investment you made is now worth half of what it was before, and I need twenty million dollars more just to be able to right size the debt as part of our refinancing." That's going to be very difficult, right? And so that is where we're going to have challenges, um, you know, throughout the throughout the country. And you know, when you look at everyone talks about the wall of refinancing. And this, you know, they throw these numbers out. A big percentage of that are in the banks from, you know, the top 25 aren't part of it, it's 26 and down. And, you know, I, I would argue between that situation, if, if you look at the level of um, the, the, the credit um, uh, you know, holdings that are on each of these uh, regional banks books, um, the, the, the challenge to keep deposits as, and, and, and the rates that they have to pay depositors the regulatory pressure that these banks are under, and now the reserves are gonna ultimately have to keep coming out of this, um, it's gonna be very hard for them to survive a standalone regional banks. And I would, wouldn't be surprised if uh, two years from now, there's you know 500 to 1,000 less banks in this country. I'm not saying they're all gonna fail, but consolidation, closures, whatever that is, than there are today. So among those multifamily owners, do you think the ones who just like really heavily invested in the Sunbelt or got in a little too late, like who do you see being hit hardest by that maturity wall that's coming up? Yeah, I, I think it's the, um, I don't think it's the big names. You know, I think there's just a lot of small uh, to medium-sized developers in these markets that are that are out there. Now, the good news on multifamily on the, on the counter side to this is the, the demographics and the demand drivers on the other side of this sort of supply that's coming in are going to be very good, right? Because there's still a housing shortage. 
Um, you know, it's it's sort of uh, counterintuitive, but with the increase in rates, it's, it's exacerbating the housing shortage because you have less supply put on the market for single family homes and multifamily. So when we get through this and you're into 25, 26, um, you know, I think you'll have good uh, demand and good fundamentals for those uh, for those uh, assets. So the trick is, you know, how do they bridge it, right? Who has the access to capital? So I think the, I don't, it's maybe not a name. It's the question is, who has the access to the capital to help bridge and to re-equitize the, the loans? Uh, and probably the people that are going to be hurt the most were people who were just buying at, you know, 3% cap rates, assuming they were going to have significant rent growth, um, floating rate debt, and that rent growth hasn't happened, rates have gotten higher, expenses have gotten higher. Um, and in that case, there's probably not a lot of hope. So we've spent a lot of time talking about New York and office, but I wanted to talk about what RxR is looking at outside of that and what other asset classes, areas, markets you're looking at for investment opportunities. I saw in March, you announced that you'd bought this 1,000-acre site in North Carolina for single-family home development and a big life science campus. But you know that seems to be one kind of new opportunity. What like I said, what asset classes, markets is RxR looking at when deals start to pick up again? Yeah, so the, um, you know, we, uh, about the two years ago, began to look at what we were doing in New York and said, you know, really what what we have made our business on is understanding the that um, highly educated value worker, right? And, and that, and thinking about the knowledge worker in that economy. And we said, and, and what were some of the challenges that New York has faced that now other parts of the country, as we've seen migration of some of that talent pool, go to other markets, uh, some of those challenges, and can we create um, and the solutions in real estate solutions in those other sub-markets? And so we began to uh, survey other cities, and we started by saying that we're going to focus on what we call EDS, MEDS, and WELL-EDS. So cities that have good education systems, Good healthcare systems, which tend to mean that they're magnets for talent, and then good leadership that's investing in quality of life, infrastructure, um, affordability, um, and that that you would ensure that 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 um, is there's a sort of a sustainability to this being a place that is magnetic for that talent pool uh, to go there. So we're we're now in in Phoenix, uh, we're in Denver, we're in Dallas, we're in uh, Raleigh, North Carolina, or Apex, as you were referring to. Uh, we're in Tampa. Uh, we're looking in Boston. We're looking in Atlanta. Um, I may have forgotten some places in the mix there, but that's that. that that's the and, and there and the themes again are we're investing in um, you know those areas that are more transit oriented, um, have the connectivity. Um, they're whether they are public private partnerships um, formally or public private partnerships by the fact that the public has made these investments in infrastructure to spur economic uh, growth and development, that's where we're uh, investing. And we, we're starting with multifamily, um, but now we, we're moving to logistics, we're moving to um, life sciences um, and other areas that make sense in each of those different uh, locations. And so that's been you know, a pretty big part of our growth over the last uh, 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 18 months and something that I'd expect to see more as we continue to expand over the next couple of years. I have one last question. If you could look back, you know, 10 years ago, would you have foreseen that you would have made, you started making these investments in some of the Sunbelt cities in logistics? That's a, it's a great question because we debated leaving New York 
many times. And um, in the in when we had looked at our old way of doing business was that we had if we were going to go to a market we wanted to be really big and we wanted to have all the advantages that RxR or a prior company had in New York. Um, and then you know we, we so we always were afraid of it. And then when we started, we realized that uh, that was sort of unnecessary because we have the relationships with the major um, the brokerage firms. So when we go to those markets, people know us, they know that we're real. Um, we understand the type of customers that want to live in those in those markets um, and probably got accelerated and, and we probably got eased as the as the migration of the talent pool began to expand to other um, nodes around the country versus where it was before. But I think in probably in retrospect, and maybe, you know, we were thinking about it, but we probably could have started that earlier than we ultimately did. Deconstruct will be back on Monday, August 28th with a brand new slate of guests, topics, and news to cover. Until then, please send all pitches, ideas, and feedback to podcasts at therealdeal.com. Enjoy the summer.